This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree, coming to you from Philadelphia. We've got a great guest coming on with us for the program. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. We'll also be joined by Nitesh Shah, who's the head of commodities and macroeconomic research for Wisdom Tree UK Limited. Uh, I'm a risk representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a CRVIS Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Church affiliates. Professor, uh, we've got to do a quick taping with you on Thursday night here at 6 p.m. We're going to be traveling during the live show, but a lot going on. So excited to get your take. Got a little bit of a sell-off today, Professor. What do we yeah. What do think? Yeah, and I don't think it's over. Um, uh and, and, and the interesting thing is that interest rates were down. Um, you know, there's the situation in Ukraine. And what's confusing is that oil was down <laughs> uh, today, although it has risen a lot. Uh, the, the big whatever happens in Ukraine, um, um, the big picture is still the Fed. And... Um, as we've been saying, we'll take a look at what happened since last week. Last week, we got the consumer price index. It was bad. This week, we got the producer price index. It was even worse and uh, was even further above expectations in all categories. Uh, then we had import prices, which isn't as important as the other two, but still was way over uh, the expectations. Uh, gasoline is soaring. Um, in price, and and uh, you know that makes me virtually certain that the March tenth announcement is not going to be good. Um, that uh, is going to come uh, before the Fed meeting, and um, I think that uh, uh, I think the situation is building for much more aggressive uh, increases. Now we have not, to my knowledge, got a date yet for uh, Powell's Humphrey Hawkins testimony. Usually it's supposed to be in February, but I've, I've read something that it might be delayed the first week of March. It is going to come before the meetings and probably before the consumer uh, price index for February is out. That's gonna be very important, uh, as we mentioned, in terms of uh, tipping the, his hand about whether he's made uh, a significant shift towards being um, much more hawkish uh, or not. Then we get that very important uh, December, uh, excuse me, March uh, 10th announcement on CPI. And then, of course, in the following um, week, we get the um, uh, actual uh, decision of the, uh, of the FOMC. Oh, by the way, we do get a money supply uh, coming out. I think it's going to be a week from Tuesday. Again, something I monitor very closely. Um, in terms of whether there's been any slowing whatsoever in the rate of monetary growth, and it has been minuscule in terms of the slowing that we have seen so far. Have you seen the, our, our favorite uh, Fed president who's coming on our show has been making the headlines uh, a lot. Has anybody else been commenting to your knowledge of the trajectory? Uh, you know, Bullard's been saying front-loading will probe him on that next week. What's what? Anybody else making comments? Uh, not that I've heard of. I mean, he's going to be the most outspoken, and I'll tell you, he will be. Uh, I mean, you know, depending on what happens in, in that uh, CPI report, um, I think he's going to be very aggressive. And in fact, my feeling is, is that uh, he's a voting member this year, and if it goes only 25 basis points, he may be a dissenter. And we have not had a dissent. And we should have had some dissents. <laughs> I mean, uh, they've been much too classic. Uh, we should have had many more voices in 2021 than we had. So, uh, uh, yes, we're going to have uh, uh, Jim on. We've had him many times before. We had him last year. 
when there was um, when he was kind of waddling about whether it was he wasn't decided, but he's it looks like he is definitely decided and uh, uh, he should be afforded. I think the others are going to fall on the line. The power, the political pressure. I mean, particularly on this gasoline situation. Um, I mean, um, uh, you know, we'll see whether invasion comes in or not. But I mean, the, the price was going up way before there was even a threat of, of the invasion. And um, I mean, there's there, uh, as we know, experts have talked about 100 uh, per gallon even before uh, any threats of invasion. It, it will spike up if we get a full scale invasion. Um, but, you know, the truth of the matter is it's it's not a major factor in what is going to be going on. I think the major factor is the inflationary pressures from all points. The Fed is just getting a lot of political. I mean, the political is going to be on the Biden administration. The Biden administration is going to be have to acquiesce to an aggressive Fed. People are not going to like it, but it's the only thing we can do. There's some people who say the Fed, where inflation is coming from, can the Fed really have an impact? Is it is 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 raising rates really the answer? How, how do you respond to those people? Absolutely, it's the answer. Uh, the trouble is, is people got too much money, and and that and they're they're during the pandemic, and they're they're still taking out loans for more money because it's so cheap. Uh, you got to make it more expensive to cut down the growth of the money supply. Uh, you know, inflation is ultimately a monetary phenomenon. It's the price of the money. That's what inflation is. Uh, the CPI is nothing more than the inverse of the price of money. So, and the Fed controls that supply of money. And we've, that we've talked about, we never have seen it grow faster. I, and, and that's one reason why, as you know, way back two years ago, I said, well, the two years ago, it was just before the pandemic hit in full. But two months after the pandemic, I said, this is crazy. And it kept on going. And until you start, now, how do you stop that growth of the money supply? First of all, you do drain the balance sheet a bit. That's not going to be as important. Raising rates to cut down on loans. Saying people, whoa, things are not going to be It'll cut down on the stock market and, and, and the housing market. Put a pause in it. Got to put a pause in it and then think that uh, the Fed is serious and people can't just think that, uh, you know, oh, yeah, I'm, the, the inflationary future is, is going to be uh, the way uh, it, there's got to be credibility here in the central bank. And uh, the only way to really do it is raise rates, not not just reduce the balance sheet. You've got to see it in the rates. On this Ukraine situation, your your intuitive sense on how all these things play out is always you know very sharp. How do you what do you think they're going after there? What what do you have a read of the dynamics at play if things are going to worsen or get better? Well, it, 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 you know. Yeah, you know, Putin is so, so to speak, demanding they never join NATO and that there's a pullback in troops. I don't know how far, as you know, Poland and, and the other its former members of the Soviet bloc have joined NATO because they don't want Russia to interfere. They want the West to protect them. Um, how far a pullback he wants, I'm not sure. Um, uh uh, it's hard for the Ukrainians to say never, never, never. Um, but, you know, clearly, uh, you know, Russia holds all the marbles. There's no question about that. Um, you know, you know, my feeling is that there's going to, there's still likely to be a solution. Um, but, I, I, you know, I'm not going to, I think it's very close at this particular juncture. Um and there's going to be some concessions, maybe a 30-year, we're not joining NATO, or uh, or maybe they'll say they won't join it, but then politics change, Putin's not, you know, going to be president forever, uh, and, and uh, you know, old alliances shift. So, uh, you know, you can promise things now. But, I mean, they hold all the marbles if they want to. NATO will, will move close to the border, and they will never go in, and we won't go in. Um, and then it looks like, you know, then there'll be a standoff. But the sanctions would hurt the Russians. Uh, and uh, I don't know if the Russian people, you know, under the, the Putin regime, uh, it's been a very sad country. It has great potential. Um, and, uh, you know, be, it, it's it's just turned into a, um, because he does not allow really private enterprise to, to um, 
flourish. I mean, it's the same thing in extreme of what uh, Xi Jinping uh, Xi is doing uh, in China. Um, you know, sort of castigating the the uh, uh, tech class, but there is no tech class in, in Russia. So, I mean, it's it's a sad story about Russia. He's deflecting information. We're going to take over one of our older colonies. You know, maybe he thinks he's got enough bennies from that, but I think he will regret it. I think it will solidify the West. Sanctions will hurt him. And there is an undercurrent of discontent in Russia. So if he does it, he could hold on for another year or so. But my feeling is, is his actual years would be numbered more by going into Ukraine. You get a short-term boost, but a long-term negative by going into Ukraine. I think he's a smart enough man, perhaps, to realize that. All right, so final closing thought. You said maybe a little bit more to come on the markets as as you think about that pullback. A little bit more. I, you know, I still think you know we got perhaps another 5%. Uh, NASDAQ, I think, down into that 20% bear market category. And S&P into correction uh, territory, um, uh, which is 10 to 20. I think it's going to be more likely on the mild side. It is so hard, of course, to predict the short run. It could go further. Right now, if we believe the $222 12-month projected earnings of S&P, we are selling below 20 times earnings right now, which is the first time we have sold below 20 times earnings in quite a while and in a negative interest rate environment, a real interest rate environment that we are in, even with the Fed tightening, that is a pretty good long-term value. But it isn't as cheap as we've gotten in, in previous sell-offs, but it for long-term holders, yeah, um, it, it's it's no certainly no longer overpriced. And the market is certainly priced in a bunch more hikes than they did before. So it's uh, yeah, we'll we'll report again next week and um, uh, what developments happen. Of course, in the Ukraine, uh, we won't get too much price action, but we will see oil and we'll see political pressures. Well, Professor, thanks for taking some time before your trip. Have a uh, have a good uh, good weekend. Thank you, Jeremy. Well, that was uh, my co-host, Professor Jeremy Siegel. I'm going to bring in our guests for today. The rest of the show we've got, I mentioned Nitesh Shah, who's one of the, my colleagues and employee of Wisdom Tree UK Limited, a European subsidiary of Wisdom Tree Asset Management, a parent company, Wisdom Tree Investments. We're going to be talking to Josh Young, who's the founder and chief investment officer for Bison Interests, a Houston-based investment management firm focused on oil, energy stocks. Josh, welcome to Behind the Markets. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Uh, it, it's great. So this is like the topic of the year, uh, maybe the last two years, is what's been going on in oil and energy. Uh, and I, I've been following you on Twitter and, and a lot of your comments there. And and uh, I thought you'd be a great, great guest to talk about. Maybe for our, our listeners, introduce yourself. What's your background? How did you come to found uh, Bison Interests? Yeah, um, sure. So um, I guess the, the, the short and sweet, I've uh, been investing uh, for fun since I was a kid. Um, Went to University of Chicago, studied economics, uh, did management consulting, private equity, worked for a multi-billion dollar family office, um, did some other investments after that. And then after the oil price crash in 2014, um, realized that there was an opportunity to kind of systematically invest in undervalued oil and gas stocks uh, as a fund rather than as a kind of one-off. And you know, no, nothing is an offering or anything like that, but uh, that, that's kind of what we uh uh, I realized uh, I had a partner at the time and we, we founded Bison in 2015. We kind of thought that oil prices were going to rebound after the 2014 crash where prices, I think they fell 80% or something at the peak. Um, and then, you know, it took a, a while for the sector to get fully washed out. And uh, there were very few professional oil and gas focused fund managers left. Um, and uh, I think that's reflective. That's <laughs> the, the problem is there's not enough oil. That's why it's in the news. And the reason there's not enough oil is because there hasn't been enough investment in it. And so that, that's uh, where I come in. So um, very interesting. And, and you think then we had the negative oil prices at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's been rebounding very, very sharply. Uh, give us your, your, your bigger picture thesis. Like, where do you think we are in this oil cycle? Sort of mentioning sort of lack of capex as being one of the key drivers. What, where, where do you think we are? Has it, is it moved too fast, too far or, or what, what's the story? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I really try to stay away. Like, I'll comment on Twitter on short-term things, but from an investment perspective, and I think from, uh, I think just in general, it's a bad idea to try to predict things too short-term because there's too many different things that can happen that are unexpected. Um, so it's possible that oil has moved too much. It's possible it's because of Russia, Ukraine-type concerns. It's possible because of some other short-term stuff. Um, that's hard to know, and there's day-to-day and even month-to-month volatility that can be pretty extreme in an asset class like oil and gas equities and with the commodity. Um, but what we saw in 2015 just became a bigger and bigger problem where there was underinvestment globally, first in exploration and then in delineation and then in development. And so you have uh, – a little bit too little oil production. And everyone talks about oil production, but it's really a reserves problem. And behind that, it's a discovery problem. And there's just way too little activity. And there's been too little activity for a long time. So we're set up, I think, for a multi-year bull market due to that starvation of CapEx kind of across the value chain and over way too many years. Maybe to put some numbers behind that, like, is there a sense of I've heard a lot on CapEx has been slowing. Um, maybe it's some of our colleagues in Europe's fault, all the ESG you know, demand for not, uh, for not producing. Um, Nitesh focuses on the carbon credits market. They're trying to make carbon more expensive in Europe. But what, what, what is the sense of what CapEx is needed, what they're doing? I, I know a lot of the, the, the company reports as they're reporting earnings, this has been a hot topic of late, so we can talk a little bit about that. But how, how much CapEx do you think is needed in general, what we're getting and and how that's leading to the less supply at the moment? Uh, a lot more. Uh, I think the ESG thing is kind of like a nail in the coffin in terms of there being undersupplied oil for likely a number of years. Um, but this is, this is a problem that dates back to roughly 2012, where there had been this long uh, bull cycle for oil, and there had been a lot of offshore activity and a lot of expensive uh, Arctic and other sort of harsh environment activity to discover more oil to replace the oil that was being produced. And around that time, uh, China was having issues. And I think that's kind of where China's secular growth uh, really slowed down. And um, at that point, you saw CapEx or commodities in general fall off a cliff. And you saw uh, essentially a bear market for various industrial commodities as well as for oil. Um, it kind of started in that 2012 timeframe uh, and continued uh, until recently. So I think in terms of the amount of CapEx necessary, you have to go and backfill. And it's always harder to discover the next barrel of oil than the last one that's been produced. And then there's like one other thing that's happened that was very strange and related, I think, to low interest rates which was in the middle of a bear market for oil, there was a investment bubble where it was mostly private capital um, and it was a combination of debt and equity, uh, private capital from institutions, many of which are now claiming kind of virtue, you know, divestment. Um, they invested in shale and they, it, shale investments were mostly very short cycle, high initial production, very high decline. And, uh, you know, I think that that didn't... Um, I think that that kind of uh, compounded the problem, so now you need to back up. Nitesh, hop in there. Hey, George. Hi, this is Nitesh. Um, I was wondering if I could uh, add a follow-on question. Um, we do see a lot of the international oil companies um, that have got these net zero targets uh, and trying to demonstrate to investors that they're meeting them. Um, one of the methods of that they're undertaking is disposing of some of their older traditional assets and trying to acquire new assets. I mean, they're not acquiring the new assets anywhere near the pace that they're disposing the old ones. But who exactly are buying these assets? And are those buyers actually trying to grow those assets? Or uh, are we seeing a stagnation in that too? Yeah, I think I think that that's kind of uh, a sideshow to some extent. Um, in some cases, some of those uh, international oil majors and international oil companies were trying to show that they were producing less carbon by just having less overall oil production, uh, which was kind of simplistic and obviously doesn't really solve anything. If it's a zero-sum game and someone else owns the production, um, that doesn't really do much. What is happening um, that matters a lot for the oil market as well as for emissions is that especially the international oil companies, many of them are exploring a lot less than they did historically. And they were already exploring too little. And so 
we're just not seeing enough discoveries of giant oil fields that can produce a million barrels a day or more relative to the amount of natural depletion where you know the world's oil supply might fall by six or seven million barrels a day naturally. And so you kind of need to replace that, and we're not anywhere close to that, unfortunately. When you when you, so you think about the that lower supply, you're seeing these companies starting to report earnings, and they're talking about dividends and buybacks. I see that's like in some of the latest that people are talking about. Should they be doing more capex, or should they be returning cash to shareholders? What are there companies you would highlight on, or just how you've seen that cycle play out as they're reporting and 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 seeing profits go up with the higher prices, but uh, are, are they they're not they're not ready to go put it back in into new exploration yet? Yeah, I think I think that's like kind of playing into a misconception. So a lot of the production in the U.S. is from shale, and a lot of that is very short cycle. And so um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense if you're a shale producer and you have, let's say, 10 years left of inventory if you just continued flat um, to go accelerate the development of that inventory. Because let's say that you drilled a lot faster and you grew 20% a year. In three years, you might have no inventory left. And many of the companies are starting to spend some money on exploration, but because uh, the last number of years were so devastating. They don't really, their cost of capital is too high and they don't really have the sanction of their shareholders um, or their lenders to actually go and engage in that activity. So there's this underinvestment, uh, you know, the announcements of the Devons or Diamondbacks or Pioneers, these are three companies that announced recently and, and talked about essentially not growing at all or only growing a few percent. They actually don't really move the needle that much all they're doing is preserving their inventory life for, let's say, 10 years instead of accelerating and only having five years left of inventory. So it sounds good and it sounds like these are big things, but the reality is where you need the money to be spent is in offshore exploration. And that's really more of a decision of like an Exxon or a Total or whatever than it is of a Devon or a Diamondback. What do you hear on supply chain? We're talking, you heard Professor Siegel to kickstart the show, talking inflation. Inflation is one of our, our big topics of the day. Uh, what do you hear on supply chain issues, how companies are reporting their cost pressures on some of these things versus what they're, what they're seeing? How, how do you see any of those issues playing out within, within the companies uh, that are reporting? Yeah, uh, the, I mean, there's huge supply chain issues in oil and gas and Specifically for the shale companies, um, the shale is really kind of a half cycle sort of uh, business. And many of the companies had been putting up really good numbers over the last 18 months by kind of burning the furniture. They were they were uh, getting rid of their working capital by taking wells they had already drilled and completing them instead of drilling new wells and completing those. So if there's two steps in the process, one is drill the well, second, complete it to bring it online. Uh, it involves fracking, you know, pr- uh, pumping millions of, uh, I think it's millions of gallons of water and sand and chemicals uh, down hole to, to stimulate the reservoir. So if you just do the stimulation of reservoir, but you don't drill new wells, eventually you run out of old wells that you've drilled. And so, um, there's, there's been way too little drilling activity relative to completion activity. So one of the things you're seeing is um, many more new rigs needed or old rigs to be brought back online. The problem is that the whole supply chain for those, um, a lot of that got destroyed during COVID because there were such cost pressures. So they have to rebuild these whole supply chains, have to hire people in a tight labor market. And then many of the industrial kind of inputs uh, are challenged already independent of oil and gas. So there are various issues with steel. There are various issues with like widgets, right? Like screws and nails and so on. And so kind of it goes from the little things like that all the way up to the big things like having insufficient available rigs and people to be able to actually drill the wells necessary to get more production, even if the companies wanted to. Where do those screws come from? Or that is that a a? Uh, I saw you talk with Tracy on uh, on Twitter about that this morning. Like, is that a a local source thing? Is that a China source thing? Where, where do these industrial screws come from? That I don't know as well, honestly, uh, but it was noteworthy. Uh, the screws that, that were in, they were sold out, they were sold out from McMaster Car. And this was slightly alarming because McMaster Car is kind of the like last resort source for industrial supplies. So, um, you know, that you might be sold out at, at Home Depot or Walmart, but if you're sold out at like the last resort, it's like if the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was empty, 
um, and just had a sold out sign. So that was a little alarming and noteworthy. And it wasn't like all screws were sold out. It was a certain specification. I just thought that was indicative of, um, and, and you know, it's, it's uh, along the lines of what we had heard from people in the field. Um, and I think it's indicative of the depth of supply chain problems. It's not just cars. It's not just chips. It's kind of across the supply chain. And I think it's particularly problematic in the oil and gas value chain. Very interesting. And Tesh, go ahead. Yeah, um, if we cast our minds back to the past oil crisis, the you know one that started in 2014, um, when we started to see the, you know, oil prices collapse, rigs uh, were shut off at an alarming rate, and then when they started to be switched on as prices improved, we started to see more oil production um, come on very quickly. Uh, we got to pre-14 levels of production with, you know, uh, maybe just two-thirds of the, the, the rigs that we had at that peak of uh, 2014. This time, it doesn't seem to be following that sort of pattern. Uh, so last time, we seem to be getting this big efficiency gain, uh, possibly because of pad drilling or other types of technologies. Do you see any sort of technology um, solutions that will help out this time around, or do you think we'll be stuck with lower levels of production uh, because rigs aren't growing as fast? Um, so the one thing, and, and that's a great observation, and it's a really interesting topic um, <laughs> I can probably talk too much about, uh, but the, the one thing that's happening right now that is helping rig productivity is companies are drilling longer laterals. So instead of drilling, let's say, 7,500 feet, uh, once they're down in the ground to the depth they want, instead of drilling horizontally, let's say, 7,500 feet, they might drill... 12,500. So instead of like a mile and a half, they might drill two and a half miles or so on. Um, so uh, that that's helping. Um, but there are all kinds of problems now that weren't happening before. So one, the labor market's way tighter. Uh, two, there's been this long downturn where there have been multiple recent cycles where people working on rigs or in other sort of important jobs across the oil value chain have been fired with almost no notice and had to kind of fend for themselves. And so after that happens enough times, it ends up taking a long time and a lot more money to get those people or different people to come back to work on a rig or on a frack stack or so on. So um, I think it's uh, it's harder this time. But then there's a big thing, which is that shale was relatively new, development of shale uh, in 2014. It had only been going on for a few years. It was just starting to get... Uh, become more of an industrial style process. There were a lot of efficiencies. There were a lot of new technologies and it's much less new now. And then also the resources are much more fully developed. So um, a, a modern well could drill, let's say the first North Dakota Bakken well or the first West Texas Wolf Camp well um, very efficiently and uh, have a huge production rate, but those locations don't exist anymore. And what's left is, in general, less productive, and we're rapidly going towards even less productive uh, locations, even if they were able to get rigs to move faster and had more experienced labor and didn't have these other supply chain issues. Great, thanks. And I've been hearing, um, and this may be sort of science fiction at this stage, but um, we... Here are these uh, technologies which way you could push carbon down into the into the uh, in, into the wells instead of water propellants, and that could release more uh, oil. Is is that something that's so far out in terms of um, you know in in terms of actual commercialization? Is that just sort of uh, kind of almost textbook kind of uh, uh, theories at the moment? And does it require once again, more investment to get there? Um, I mean, it already happens, and it's been happening for a while. Um, uh, CO2 has been injected into certain kinds of oil reservoirs for, I don't know, 40 years or something, uh, mostly just to increase the recovery of oil from those certain reservoirs. So it's definitely possible, um, and it definitely happens already, so it's definitely not science fiction. I think the fictional part is that somehow... Um, you can end up with a net negative emission profile from all of the 
investment necessary in order to accomplish gathering the CO2, uh, concentrating it, and then uh, pumping it down into the reservoir. So I think there's a lot more, and I think that's true for a lot of alternative uh, energy uh, type ideas and uh, electric vehicles and so on. And I think people just, they want to start counting at the end and ignore all the rest of the inputs. And I think if you if you counted the energy, uh, or the, the emissions and the pollution associated with mining lithium or mining some of these rare earth metals, uh, you know, it gets a lot more complicated from an environmental impact for like electric cars. Uh, similar similar idea here. I think it's a it's an interesting idea and it definitely works. Um, I think the problem is more how effective is it or efficient is it to gather CO2 from the atmosphere or from specific sources and then ship it to a place where you can then uh, deposit it in an oil reservoir. We're going to get into a lot more, uh, and we have uh, Josh and Nitesh with us for the for the hour. Um, before we take a quick break, Nitesh, wh- while we're talking about carbon and 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 we I want to talk a little bit about pricing of a lot of these dynamics. But in Europe, you guys have these carbon futures that try in a way to make carbon more expensive. Talk a little bit about the dynamics in carbon futures. Why? What are they? Why are people using them? Um, and and what's the whole the whole purpose of of those carbon futures for for the regulators and and the market at, at large? Yeah, great question. So just to put a bit of context here, there are multiple carbon markets across the world. Some are what we call compliance regulated markets. And those are, I guess, the big markets um, and, and the ones we, you know, that we primarily look at in, in Europe. Uh, so this is a system where the government says, OK, a certain set of companies who are highly polluting, uh, we're putting a cap on the amounts of uh, greenhouse gas emissions you can produce. And here are some permits called allowances that will uh, allow you to produce the, you know, do, undertake your economic activity that produces these greenhouse gases. Those, the number of those allowances will keep reducing each year, so they keep tightening the market. But those allowances are tradable. So if you're a company that has a relatively low cost in reducing your carbon output, you can sell them to other companies that face higher costs. So it kind of distributes that cut in carbon emission quite efficiently. Um, And that's one of the reasons that the policymakers like this kind of uh, system. Now, because they're reducing the supply of these every year, the prices of these allowances should get higher each year. The more aggressive you get with your policy on, on, on the climate front, the higher the prices go. And the more economic activity that takes place, once again, the higher these prices go. And this is a market that's uh, really taken off in the, in the last year with more than a doubling of prices of the allowances. Well, there's been a lot of crazy prices in European uh, energy. So we're going to come back uh, on some of these topics. We've got Josh Young, founder of Bison Interest, Nitesh Shah from Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. This is Behind the Markets. So, Josh, in the first part, we're talking a lot about the demand and supply of, of oil. One of the things when, when you – I guess when, when, when you think about commodity investing, there's the companies and then there's the commodities. And, and what, what happens when people – you can't buy like a physical barrel of oil. It's not like you go get a gold bar and you store it in a vault. You know, it's, it's, it's – you trade through – through the futures markets. I want to talk about where you see opportunities in companies. But before that, on, on the futures market itself, you have this curve structure where you know it's, it's in very sharp backwardation where the future prices are well below current prices. What's your interpretation of that? Do you think that's a positive, negative sign um, for long-term investors in oil? What, what's the, the shape of the curve tell you today? Yeah, I mean... Historically, backwardation has happened when oil prices were rising. So um, generally, I think I was reading something that apparently the Fed may have misunderstood this when they looked at various commodity price forward curves um, in the futures market. Uh, Just because it's cheaper in the future on the futures market doesn't mean that in the future it will be cheaper. It just means that that's essentially the discounted price today for delivery at whatever point you go out at in the future. Um, and I know that sounds a little complicated. Basically, when it's structured like this, almost always the price has gone up and not down. 
It's interesting. We, we did a study saying, you know, for commodity investors, it costs them something like 7% a year to roll futures the last two decades because of the shape of the curve. It'd be a contango and it's very expensive, always rolling. And now it's very different. And in oil in particular, it's, it's very different. Uh, and so, so it's interesting to hear. What, you, you focus a lot on the companies as, as you think about where you're looking for opportunities. Do, do you think there's, are there certain areas that you're especially focused on today? Yeah, uh, you could probably tell from my commentary on shale. I'm not very excited about shale producers. Again, like high decline, service intensive businesses um, can do well in certain environments, but tend not to do as well over the course of the cycle or multiple cycles. I'm interested in companies that are kind of on the other end of the spectrum with relatively low uh, production declines. Uh, if they did nothing, their production might decline 10 or 20 percent instead of a shale company where their production, if they did nothing, might decline 40 or 50 percent. So I like companies like that, partly because they don't need to reinvest very much. So in an inflationary environment, they're less susceptible to uh, drilling and other service cost increases. Um, and then uh, they tend to generate more free cash flow. And whether they use that to choose to drill and grow or whether they choose to make acquisitions or return capital, kind of any of those choices can tend to yield a better return, from what I can tell, than being in companies with pretty high decline rates. So that actually narrows the universe because most of the publicly traded producers in the U.S. and Canada are higher decline uh, shale type companies. So are they being found in certain pockets of the world? Are they U.S. plays? Does it become more of a global scenario for that that type of exposure? Yeah, there there are some U.S. plays. There are some Canadian. There are some kind of around the world. Um, I, I tend to avoid kind of the most extreme geopolitical risk. Uh, so certain parts of uh, South America or certain parts of Africa. Although, to be fair, some of the stuff that's been happening uh, here in North America recently in the headlines makes you think that maybe there's some geopolitical risk uh, here in Canada. And so, um, you know, I think uh, I think I, I try to stay focused on the, on the risks associated with it as well as the um, production. And then uh, in terms of oil majors or some of the places that people go first, uh, some of the biggest service companies, I think many of them tend to actually trade quite expensive because it's just the first place that capital goes and it's the first place that people think of. And that yields, I think, some of the least attractive opportunities from a value perspective or opportunity to uh, outperform. We focus a lot on oil. Um, and, and natural gas is one of those sort of like maybe the most volatile parts of the energy complex. When I talk to Nitesh and his team in Europe, they they try to get me to avoid any talk like natural gas futures. The rolling of them is is I call them uh, it, it's challenging. Um, but how do you think about the companies operating the natural gas space? What any any outlook for for what's going on there? Yeah, I mean in the U.S. in particular, there is plentiful natural gas, which is different from oil. Um, and wells uh, in shale drilling for natural gas have actually become more productive over time. So where uh, oil shale wells might have peaked in productivity in, let's say, 2017, 2018, shale gas wells, uh, the most productive year ever for a full year was 2021. So um, likely that continues and wells continue to be productive in 22. That means that there's constant supply pressure uh, pushing price down. And so... Um, that's a very hard game. I do have some exposure uh, through more of the sort of conventional low decline kind of later life uh, type production, but it's something where I try to be pretty careful because there's not the same sort of fantastic tailwinds that you have for oil where there's been this massive underinvestment. And it's also more of a local market. So um, from a U.S. perspective, the U.S. and Canada basically are what matters other than a small percentage of gas getting exported through LNG and then a small percentage of gas getting exported to Mexico. So it's kind of a more uh, specific local market. I think over time it could re-rate higher as a lot more LNG export facilities are built and as industrial activity shifts to the U.S. from Europe and other places that have much higher gas prices. Uh, but for the near to medium term, I think it's, it's going to be a tough market. And uh, you see that on an energy equivalence basis where, um, you know, gas is at a third or so of the price on a BTU equivalent basis to oil. And U.S. gas is, I think, at like a third or uh, even less uh, versus European gas, uh, even though 
European gas prices have fallen a lot recently. Yeah, you had some wild prices there, Natesh, in Europe and in London, where where you are. What what's going on in the natural gas market in in Europe? Yeah, natural gas uh, prices are one of the most extremely volatile things at this point in time. Um, and a large part of what's going on is that the inventory of natural gas is extremely low uh, across Europe. One of the largest sources of our natural gas is uh, Russia. And Russia has been putting in uh, a lot lower um, flows in, into Europe. Uh, and obviously, with all the saber rattling uh, uh, with uh, between Russia and NATO, um, it's almost being uh, sort of weaponized at this point in time. So, um, you know, there's an, an additional sort of geopolitical premium in, in natural gas uh, at, the, at this point. And it's going to be hard to recover that lost inventory uh, for, the, for the course of this, uh, the, this season. So with gas prices, um, you know, with, with, sorry, with, with gas inventory being so low, prices have rocketed. But when you get some signs of an improvement, the prices comes crashing down once again. And going back to sort of futures market curve uh, structure, um, natural gas futures curves, unlike most other commodities, uh, tend to be very seasonal. So you go from a period of where you're in backwardation to contango to backwardation, and those things are quite hard to to to, to manage. And they can your difference between your spot return, as in the price you may see on your screen every day in terms of the, where gas is trading at the very front end, uh, compared to what you get as an investment, uh, it can be very different. Uh, and, and that's really brought up in in sort of natural gas, uh, uh, you know, uh, futures curves. So. Um, we do, we do see a, a lot of volatility here in, in Europe. But that once again, because of the undersupply in Europe, uh, we do expect um, much larger imports into Europe through the liquefied natural gas uh, channel that you were mentioning uh, earlier on, Josh. And I, I do think that probably be a good uh, supporting factor for uh, U.S. natural gas because uh, that will be the feedstock into into the into LNG, so be be very interesting to see how much the infrastructure there will build out over coming years. Josh, when when you think about, uh, and I saw some of when one of your newsletters talks about how Bison is doing versus some of the standard oil and other stuff, which is uh, really an impressive uh, track record for what what I've seen. Where where do you get the levered upside? Is it by identifying the right opportunities that have been discounted that that sort of shoot, shoot higher? Are you playing things in with other sort forms of leverage to get those kind of exposures? Do you think about going short things at some point in time? How how Talk a little bit more about your investing process to uh, to get this oil thesis right. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, we, we actually don't use any leverage. Um, we have no margin. Um, we don't borrow as a cash account. <laughs> we don't short stocks. Um, so what has happened is it's a little bit like Forrest Gump, where uh, we set out to do something that was very competitive, uh, catching shrimp, and there were lots of other people doing it. And then there was a big storm, which is a seven-year, uh, essentially, bear market, and almost all the boats got washed away. And so, you know, we went fishing after the storm and caught a lot of, caught a lot of shrimp. So um, I, that, that's like kind of a very high-level perspective. Um, specifically, I mean we've been able to find a lot of things that are very undervalued. Some of the things we own are up tremendously, like a thousand percent or more, and are still very cheap statistically, but also, um, you know, they're generating lots of free cash flow. They're growing, um, they're paying off debt. And so I think like the biggest returns we had were companies that had been over levered that I think the market was discarding as if they were going to go bankrupt and in some cases, they were able to actually buy back their bonds or other debt for a large discount relative to the face uh, value, and then have been able to delever almost entirely over the next 18 months. And so uh, if you look at it from a value perspective, it makes sense that the enterprise value of a company would stay similar as they pay off debt. And I think there's the room, and in some cases it's happened already, in some cases it hasn't happened yet. I think there's room, if you take a company that had, let's say, $150 million of debt, if they go to zero, maybe the market cap growth should be more than $150 million because there's not really 
that much more risk to the business of the business going away if it's taken away uh, that sort of uh, sort of Damocles that's been hanging over it. So I think that's kind of been the biggest thing. But it, it sounds risky the way I was saying it, but in many cases these companies just didn't have the it wasn't that risky anymore by the time we got involved or by the time we started adding to our positions. They already were generating a lot of cash flow. They were already paying off a lot of their debt. And uh, and I think the market starts to realize that. It just sometimes takes a while, especially because there are so few people focusing on this. And so um, as the market figures it out, it's like, okay, well, there's this thing that was worth $200 million because it had a $50 million market cap and $150 million of debt what's the right value? And so you see these like step ups in price and share price. And I think that process isn't done yet. I think there's still a lot more room and there's a lot more specifics and other catalysts and stuff. But I'd say just that that deleveraging is still, I think, poorly understood and still offers a lot of return uh, for some E&P stocks. So it looked like things were going bust. Oil went negative, and these stocks were trading at pennies on the dollar, and and now they're just moving back. It is is and 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 still, still some more interesting uh, setups in your view. What what's when you think about the multi-year cycle in oil? Um, is how would you say an approach that we got to the end of this cycle? Like, what would be the characteristics that you said? Yep, oil's now caught up. We're there. Uh, how, how do you how do you foresee this multi-year cycle? I mean, you need to have some exploration activity um, and need to start seeing uh, reserves grow relative to production. So there's still only, I think it's 10 or 12 or something percent of reserves that are produced being replaced uh, through exploration right now. So I think you'd need to at least get to full replacement of reserves through exploration and we're very far from that that's like a good starting point and again that may take years and oil prices may go up and down a lot in between now and then but i think there's this general tailwind uh from this uh buildup of many years of underinvestment and yeah like oil production could go up temporarily in between now and when reserves start to get replaced but that whole process is really just burning the furniture and i think the we're, we're kind of running out of furniture. OPEC is running out of furniture, other sort of large, and by furniture reserves, uh, other large national oil companies around the world and large independent producers. Um, I, I, think, I think you need to see them start replacing. And we're not seeing that yet. We're seeing companies divest from oil and invest in alternatives, which aren't really reducing oil demand. Um, and then we're seeing producers buy back stock and pay down debt and pay dividends. So I think we're just not seeing you need that to get solved. And we're so far from that that I think you just need a lot higher prices and probably a lot more time before you see a big. Uh, and that, again, oil can crash a lot in between now and at the end of this cycle. But it might be like 2008 where oil prices fall and then rebound very sharply uh, shortly after. It's like, what's going to be the, the market catalyst that gets the CEOs to say, instead of doing a buyback, I'm going to make the investment, right? Without, they're going to have to get rewarded. And the question is, what price is that rewarded? Is it uh, multi-hundred to 200, 150? Or you had a CEO who said it's not any of those, right, is, is the recent quote. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question and observation. And I think it's part of what gets me so bullish is we're just not even – we're at prices we haven't seen since 2014. And like you guys mentioned, activity levels are way lower. Um, even for half cycle, quarter cycle type activity, um, U.S. production is barely up from where it was last year. Uh, it's struggling to grow uh, materially. A lot of short cycle stuff is not happening or it's happening, but it's not yielding a lot of production. So yeah, you have like even the things that you would think would be obvious not happening so much at $90 oil. And then you have the things that really require a multi-year perspective, in some cases, almost a decade perspective. If you think about some of the big projects that have happened offshore. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think you might need higher oil prices for a lot longer. And then you might need much higher equity valuations, too. And we're not anywhere close to that. Uh, equity prices are still, I think, like the XOP index um, is still down 50% from where it was last time oil was at 90 in 2014. 
Very interesting. Nitesh, we got a lot, final three or four minutes. What's uh, Any thoughts in your mind from what you've heard so far? Any any closing thoughts or, or questions that you want to get from Josh in the, in the closing minutes? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Josh, you've painted the picture of um, oil markets remaining quite tight if we can't uh, you know, uh, uh, get the exploration uh, uh, achieved. I mean, if you look at reserves, um, there seem to be quite low in general in the US and uh, the Brent regions, you know, Norway, UK, etc. So a lot of the assets really sit, um, I guess, in a lot of the OPEC type of countries. Are they accessible? Uh, eventually, but they require, I think, these sort of five to 10 year sort of investments. And that's not happening as well from what we can tell. Uh, they're just starting to do a little bit of that, but the amount that's being done might allow for another million or two million barrels a day of production, not the five to 10 that you might need for them to be doing. Um, and same same story for kind of NOPEC, the, the big uh, outside US, outside Canada, outside OPEC uh, producers. You're just not seeing that investment. They may have the reserves. Um, in some cases, the reserves might be overbooked, but it kind of doesn't matter. Uh, they're just not spending enough to be able to bring them from discovery to development. And then they're also not replacing um, you know, where, where there are those smaller reserves, they're not replacing those reserves. For people who want to sort of follow along on your thesis, Josh, and, and want to get involved, any things you would tell people how to stay in touch with bison interests, where they can follow your work and and get involved in, in what you're doing? Sure, yeah. Uh, our website, we have a newsletter we put out that's easy for people to sign up for at bisoninterest.com. And then uh, easy to find on Twitter, uh, handles Bison Interests or uh, Josh Young. You can find me on Twitter pretty easily. You can find Nitesh on Wisdom Tree in Europe. Uh, if you're a European, uh, you can find Nitesh's stuff on our, our European website. Um, it's very interesting. We talked from Siegel at the start of the show. Uh, the Behind the Markets is going to have Bullard next week. A lot of the other Wharton business programs, they have two other Fed presidents. I hear Mary Daly is coming on a Monday show, and uh, President Pat Harker from the Philly Fed is coming on a Thursday show. So Wharton Business Radio has got a bunch of the Fed presidents. It's exciting. Josh Young, thank you so much for joining Atesh Shah. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great long weekend, everybody. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 